Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to the Drake cast. That's probably squirrels on the deck. That's probably not going to be good for the recording. Is that a squirrel? Today, with the help of Drake Magazine editor and founder, Tom Bai, we'll be walking through what you can expect from the coming fall 2021 issue of The Drake. A little tardy, per usual. If you're hearing this, it means you should be able to buy it at your local fly shop or on our website, drakemag.com. Some pretty big stories in there. Got the usual fine collection of tippet essays, some humor, musky, steelhead, the sort of fall topics that you would imagine, plus a couple of surprises. Not to mention pieces on disappearing coastal towns, coho salmon rising from the ashes, bluegill bugs, and even a few tearjerkers. Okay, flip past some ads. You've got the letter from the editor, which Tom calls the put-in. The put-in is about Superfund, (laughs) which sounds kind of boring. For those of you who aren't familiar, Superfund sites are contaminated areas where hazardous waste has just been poorly managed. The federal government identifies these places and then goes about rehabilitating them, usually at a very high cost. But it intrigues the hell out of me because there are over 1,300 of them in the country. And a lot of these places are not only have they moved beyond the designation of a contaminated site, but they have been repaired to the point where there are homes and condos and things like that placed on top of them. And they've completely fixed miles and miles of watershed. I've realized over the years how many places that are super funds that have been fixed to the point that you can go fishing there. A few examples include the area surrounding the sunken ships at Pearl Harbor, the Gowanus Canal that runs through Brooklyn, that gaping hole in the mountain next to Butte, Montana, landfills in New Jersey, the harbor in Portland, the list goes on. And the reason I put it in now is because in the late 90s, there was a super fund tax on a lot of these toxic chemicals that were causing a lot of this environmental destruction to begin with in the 60s and 70s, and there was a tax on that. And then it went away in the 2000s. Some influential congresspeople got rid of it. And um, Biden's new infrastructure bill, it is back in. And it's, uh, by all indications, going to pass. Actually, the infrastructure bill was signed into law about three hours after Tom and I recorded this interview. So the Superfund tax is happening. It's a huge deal because it's estimated 10 to 14 billion towards these kinds of super fun projects out there that just don't have the money to be fixed, even though there's a lot of volunteers and Trout Unlimited and groups like that that are willing to go do the work. But I just talk about one that's here in Denver and then highlight, I could pick any of dozens, but I talk about the upper Arkansas by Leadville, which was one of the worst in the country. I mean, there was a hundred miles of river there that no fish had been in for a hundred years. <laughs> And over time, they fixed it. And in 2014, Colorado designated it a gold medal water in that section of the Arkansas. And it's a really cool story. And it's just a a story saying that there's a lot of money coming in that hopefully some of these other ones will also be able to do. And the idea behind me writing this is just that there is hope 
for a lot of <laughs> things, a lot of problems that this country faced at a time when we thought there's no way that this is ever going to get fixed. Flip a few more pages and you'll find the letters to the editor. I don't even like Drake. The Drake is great. I told you the Drake was bad. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. Of course, a couple more ads, and then eventually you'll make it to the scuttlebutt section of the magazine, which is the first big block of stories. The opening scud story is about some of the big steelhead news that was made in September and October in Oregon, primarily on the Columbia River, and also a little bit about what happened in Canada, but this is going to surprise you. Elliot and probably some of the readers, but to give you some idea of the direction, the subtitle is In Defense of Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. <laughs> Just the more I read, the more people I talk to, I think Oregon ODFW gets a pretty bad rap for a lot of things. And there's some amazing work going on. And this will go down as the worst steelhead run on the Columbia River in history in terms of numbers. It's certainly not great news, but with so much focus on that at the time, I was frustrated that hardly anybody was talking about the fact that there was a quarter of a million coho coming back. <laughs> and this year, as of today, there is a return over lower granite, which is the highest dam on the snake system. It's the last dam that steelhead and salmon have to go over. And 23,000 coho have crossed over that dam. And you're talking about a fish that for 12 years, through the mid 80s or early 90s, it was zero. Those fish were gone. The state of Oregon did that with the tribes. I mean, it was led by the tribes. And it's a really cool success story for those fish. And I've talked to a lot of federal people, including the, the director of that program. And, and he just said some really interesting things about the future of steelhead. And I know he's a bureaucrat and all that is going to say all the right things, but he just has a lot of faith in steelhead coming back. He thinks it can happen because of the data they have so much more information, so much more improvements in habitat and stuff like that with or without the dams coming down. It's not much of my opinion. It's mostly reported pieces because I just felt that there were too many essays written at that time that were just sad and talking about how they missed the steelhead. And I was right there with them, but I wanted to find out why. So that's kind of the first news story. And then can I stop you before you go on to the next one? Um, what the hell is scuttlebutt? Why the name? Oh, well, cause scuttlebutt spelled with a T, which is the correct spelling is just like, rumor, chatter. I think most people know what scuttlebutt means. And I just changed it to D because of the scud is something you can fish with. Is that not obvious? Am I the only person that gets that? I might be. <laughs> but that, that, was, that was the idea. I misspelled it on purpose. And I have had people email me like, why do you spell that wrong? I'm like, because scud, duh, the fly you use. And you've talked about how you want this to be like a news heavy section of the magazine. We're going right into like the meat of issues that you're, you're interested in things that you think are important. And so that is what this first section of the magazine is. Yes, very much so. I think it's very important. It is my 
background. And frankly, it's something that very few magazines do anymore, the reporting side of it. But the other idea is really just to do reporting and cover stories more deeply than people would otherwise. I guess I could have started with the news that some of our readers may be aware of the story on Amy Herrig and her father. And Amy Herrig went to prison last week. And she is in a camp in Bryan, Texas. And I wish her well. (laughs) Can you give me like a five sentence recap of who this person is and uh, the connection to the outdoors fly fishing industry specifically? Sure. So Amy Herrig and her father had a lodge in Alaska. They still do. And around 2010 or so bought the Daniki properties. So they had at one time five different lodges and they bought these with money that they made selling. Originally it was legal, just pipes and things like that to smoke weed out of. And then they started selling synthetic marijuana, which is, has nothing to do with marijuana. It's, uh, it's made in a lab in China and they hit that perfect window where the feds couldn't catch up and they made $40 million on it. But then the feds caught up to them and they had their lodge in Alaska raided. And we ran a small story on that in 2014. And at that time, my first communication with Amy was that I had no right to write that story and that I better back off. And I didn't agree. (laughs) And I spent the next five years working on that story. And I went to a couple of their cases and wrote a big story for it last winter and last winter's issue. And she commented on the Drake website is still there. She was the first commenter saying that I was sentenced, but that's pending appeal. And she appealed this past May and it did not go well. And her father went to prison in 2018 and her three-year sentence began last week and she she seemed quite certain that she was never going to go and uh she sued me for a lot of money and a lot of things happened but i was not upset to see her go behind bars so that's kind of that story (laughs) that's fascinating and what's the status on those lodges are they still operating legally it's a big mystery because they put all of it into a trust to pretend they didn't own it but they they sold one, which was the lodge on the Dean, and they still have one of the Bahamas, another one in Alaska. Let's all take this opportunity to wish Amy the best. Then we've got a new ride with Clyde, the Drake's trusty Mercury Marquis workhorse from the 70s. He had a tough time getting from Tennessee to Alabama, but <laughs> it's a young rider from Alabama that has a unique voice. He involves a lot of his home state and home fish and that sort of thing. It's just well-written and funny, and he did a great job with it. Then a piece from Andy Harris, who is featured on episode number 56 of this podcast, reading his story, The Club. There's not a lot of new lodges open in the Bahamas, at least not ones that start out really well. He did a great job on that one as well, and I was just kind of surprised because he went down to this lodge like the week after it opened, 
And many times a writer like that, who's a literary type, can't go do any kind of service journalism. And he did a great job with this too. He just nailed it. I mean, you know, it's written well, kind of essay-ish, but gives great information on the lodge and even critiques a few things. And what lodge is it? It's uh, it's called Soulfly Lodge. It's the same guy who has the Soulfly Outfitters, Kyle Schaefer. He guides out of Maine for stripers and things like that. And uh, it's he and his wife, and it looks like a great place. And it's on the outer islands, and uh, sounds awesome. And they tried for permit and didn't get any, of course, but got some good bonefish. And it looks like a great place. I'd love to. Uh, I've never even heard of the Barry Islands. It's it's a uh, out there ways but it looks like a, a really cool place and then i have a small story on just a man named jim hill i never met him but he passed away up in idaho fishing on the henry's fork and uh this kid that knew him really well because he used to come into the fly shop wrote a little obituary on him and it's really really cool i mean it could be any of us someday right he just spent his summers up there with his wife fishing and nobody really knows exactly what happened, but it's a, just an ode to him. It's found in the river. Sad, but up there in years. And I can think of worse ways to go when I get up there than, than that. And that was a nice old tribute to him. The next one is about Roxnot. You know what that's a term for? Didymo? Yes. And it's one of the more fascinating stories. I really almost didn't run it because the band who wrote it is from New Zealand and there wasn't really anything new to the story. I thought it was just about some of the damage it had done to South Island rivers and how much it can affect the size of fish and things like that. But then in researching some of this, I came across some very recent stories about people trying to retrieve this stuff because there is a particular chemical in Didymo that apparently had gone unnoticed before, but it's called polysaccharide and it's used to make all kinds of things like batteries. It's got a lot of industrial uses and suddenly the question becomes, is there a way to retrieve this from rivers and turn it into something useful. Those big stocks that everybody's aware of, if they've ever tried to drift a nymph past them, are really annoying. And a, a lot of cities and towns have paid a lot of money to get somebody out there with tobacco, but you really can't get rid of it once it's there. But the other interesting thing about the story is that for years, this was considered an invasive species, essentially. It had been brought over from somewhere. And it turns out that it was likely here all along. They've found fossils of it in the northern parts of North America go back 10,000 years. So it's it's been around. It's just now emerging in some areas. So it's a, it's a short story, but I, I found it really fascinating. I think that there's possibilities that somebody with a lot of money and smarter than people like you and me can figure out something to do with that industrially that might make sense. The next sketch story is a, from a friend of mine up in Steamboat. Uh, Portugal, the man, that band, I didn't realize that they were super into fly fishing. I mean, I had just heard the one Feel It Still song that everybody else has heard. You know, this song. 
I didn't realize they're from Alaska and and are super into pack fishing and stuff. And they all live just outside of Portland, along with Sandy. And it's just a little kind of Q and A with Carruthers, the bass player. But he just does a little Q and A with them, and it sounds like they're pretty into the whole outdoorsy scene. They're from Wasilla, Alaska. After that, there's Ask Trask. I think most people are familiar with. But for those of you who aren't, Trask is Tom's now-deceased dog that other animals write to seeking advice. Not to be confused with Tom's dog that you can hear barking in the background of this recording. That's Lily. Yeah, it's a visit from a dog in Boise that used to go out and retrieve the kicking tees from Boise State. After that, we've got the props. Six good things, books, podcasts, products that the magazine recommends you check out. Then one, two, three, four, five, six. You've heard me talk about it before. These are the ones that I have the least struggle getting in. They're essays from individuals who sometimes have written before for the magazine, many times have not just send in a cool short essay. A couple of these are sad, to be honest. One of them is really funny. I don't know if... But before we can get into the collection of sad and funny essays, you've got to flip through a couple more pages of ads. This episode of the Drake Cast is brought to you by the craftsmen at Scott Flyrods. I got Jim Barchi, the president of Scott Flyrods, on the phone the other day. Well, it's pretty amazing is that since 1974, Scott has done one thing and one thing only, and that's handcraft high-performance flyrods. That's it. I asked Jim why he uses a Scott Flyrod. Okay, um, uh, that's easy. Why would I fish with something other than the rod I made? Well played, Jim. Check them out at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by the adventure hosts at the Eleven Experience. As the seasons change, so do our hobbies. Maybe you're dusting off your skiing gear and putting those rods away. But the Eleven Experience is one step ahead of you. We kind of combine being in the right place for fishing, but also in a destination where we can use helicopters to our advantage. And if it's the right terrain, we'll add heli skiing in the winter. This is Eleven's angling product manager, Brian O'Keefe. In Chile, we've got a million acres of fishable territory. And then when the winter rolls in, they fire up the helicopters and take people skiing. And in Iceland, you can fish for sea run, brown trout, ski, and surf in the same week. Leave all your gear laying out year-round. To plan the trip of a lifetime, visit elevenexperience.com. Okay, back to the issue. How old are you now? Have you ever seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Micus? I mean, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Put that coffee down. I'm here from downtown, and I'm here on a mission of mercy. S.R. Ferguson, who's written for me before and is, is a really great writer, he takes the most famous scene in there, which is by far the, I mean, when people think of that movie, that's the scene that they think of. And he applies it to a steelhead lodge in B.C. And it's, he nails it. <laughs> you can picture it the whole way through. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. contest. As you all know, first prize is a Sage X-Spay 13-foot 8-weight with a hardy perfect reel. Anyone want to see second prize? 
Second prize is a set of soggy black and blue flies. See them? Third prize is you're out. You pay to charter a helicopter back to town and you're kicked out of this camp for good. You get the picture? You laughing now? So that's one of those pieces. And I do, I'm just going to say this. It is, it's a little sad, but I mean, we all know some people who, maybe not, we don't know all people directly, maybe who have passed away from COVID, but the fly fishing industry has had a couple of them. One of them is a man named Andy Fitzhugh, who was a part owner and manager of Western Rivers Fly Fisher in Salt Lake. And he's written for me quite a bit in the past. And this is really a bizarre circumstance, but he had sent me last winter an essay about fishing just outside of Salt Lake and one of the rivers coming down from the mountains there in the fall, got a really early start and got up there and he came to the trailhead and there was a truck there with the door open and a man lying next to it who had obviously killed himself. And he found this guy first thing in the morning. And he just describes that scenario, a very eerie situation, all the things that any of us would ask ourselves, do we fish today? Why wouldn't we? It's just a very weird experience for him. And he describes all of that. And then a few weeks after I got this essay, I got an email from his wife telling me that Andy had died of COVID. He had two teenage daughters and it happened really, really fast. And it's a, it's a really sad story. A, a lot of people know him and he's a great writer and his piece is, is in here. It's just one of those really sad, bizarre, once removed people. I'd met him in person at the shop, but he, he's at least written three or four things for me over the year. And I was just, I was shocked that his piece is in the in this issue our thoughts and prayers go out to andy's family this section of the magazine also features a piece from fellow midwesterner tom hazelton and a confession from an angler who says he used to count fish from there we've got a page dedicated to redfish the red spread i went back and forth with the writer i'm not sure how to pronounce his last name his first name is dustin i want to say shoust i'm not sure if that's correct but he writes about a tiny little town in Southern Louisiana that he grew up in. Great story on just growing up there and just the history of the little town and how great the red fishing is around there. He no longer lives there, but a hurricane just destroyed this little town. Devastated. I mean, they're kind of used to it down there, but it's a, it's just a great story about that kind of culture down in Southern Louisiana. Then we get into the features, which is... Um, ah, the features. 30-odd pages of writing and photos with not a single ad to be seen in between. Harris, who he just kind of came out of nowhere as a writer. He's really good, and I hadn't ever heard of him or from him prior to that story he wrote about being a kid and fishing that club. He writes in this issue just about what would seemingly be a terrible story. Just going out streamer fishing in the fall and not catching a fish. He's wordy, but it's just, it, it's the sort of wordiness that's really easy to edit. It's just an extra word here or there and sometimes falls into the trap of using the 
$5 word when a 50 center will do that old cliche. But he just does such a great job of describing streamer fishing to a lot of people who have fly fished and never streamer fished. You know, a lot of them just learn how to dry fly fish or nowadays just bobber fish and have never really experienced true streamer fishing. And he does a really great job of describing it. And the, the Wisner, have you met him? He's like a friend of yours, isn't he? Steve Wisner, yeah. He's a... Is that how you pronounce his last name? Wisner, Steve Wisner. Yeah. Some musky and smallmouth guide in um, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, from my hometown. Him and his dad were on that episode where I was trying to compare them to the McLean family. That's episode number 22 of this podcast called A River Runs Near It. What's his story? How is he such a great writer? He has an MFA, and he's an English teacher at a high school. However, I have to say, I've received a lot of submissions over the years from English teachers and <laughs> even college level that are just not good. But his are so good. I mean, he just has a, a style that's really funny. It's a feature story on musky fishing during the summer, and he has some funny run-ins with some female sunbathers along the way and <laughs> just describes i mean musky fishing is hard enough when you're supposed to be out there and this is like i think late july or something like that and he's one of those writers that i will often email afterwards and say i don't care whether this is true or not but is it <laughs> for the record according to a recent text from the writer steve weisner he said the story happened pretty much exactly as written and based on the way those sirens were looking and singing, he's lucky to have made it out of there alive. The story itself is just a, this is just the time of year when you want it. You got to have a musky story in there. A uh, third feature is really cool story about Volcana River in Alaska and um, really pretty area. Like a, not a super far hike, but very mosquito-y and muggy and so kind of the way to do it is to take a raft down there it sounds like what a lot of people do but he hiked in a couple times and he brought his young wife in there and it's according to the story it's the most northernmost strain of those rainbows that are in there but just a cool little fall backcountry type story that i put in the feature well and then the big one which is about a pending Supreme Court case in New Mexico on the public access issue. It's well reported. A woman named Elizabeth Miller wrote it. She lives down there and talked to an awful lot of people. And it is something that this country, especially in the West, is really going to be wrestling with a lot in the coming years as more people with money buy up larger properties that surround waterways. And some people, if they are buying in Montana or a state that kind of has a history of allowing public access, then it probably isn't as much of a problem. But down in New Mexico, it's defined as it is in Wyoming, a lot of other states, and was ruled upon years ago, as is also the case. But it just was never really enforced. And so you have fences going across rivers the vast majority of landowners know that that is illegal, that you can't do that. And 
to make a really long decades long story short, as is the case with many of these, there's really two issues. One is the land underneath the water and who owns it. And that is generally a state's rights decision. And there is the ability to float on the water above, which are two separate. They each take their own path in history of this country, and they are not related as much as people think they are. But the bottom line is that public access is not adequately defined in any state. Some states, it's very easy to go float a river. Alaska is the easiest. I mean, basically, they just define it by if you can paddle a raft down it, go for it. Colorado's on the other end. They're generally considered the most landowner friendly, but every state in the West continues to wrestle with this and courts are very reluctant to rule on it because it's, you're going to have an awful lot of people mad at you one way or the other. Not surprisingly, it's the people with money that fund political campaigns are the landowners that want to close out the access, but the voters are the people who are trying to go out and go fishing. But one of the things that made this story unique to me and surprising to me is that a number of the guides who she interviewed were in favor of the private water because that's where they take their trips. And normally, if you were just talking to the general public, they would prefer the public access. But it's a state's rights issue. It's not likely to be settled by this case or any other. But if it does get decided, it'll be one more case that another state might look at and be like, oh, well, this is how New Mexico did it. It's a fascinating discussion. I think people will really enjoy it. It's definitely a topic that garners a lot of interest in the fly fishing world. From there, more ads. This episode of the Drake Cast is brought to you by the fine people at Howler Brothers. I'm excited to announce that the latest mutation of the Howler collection has landed. Fall 2021 threads are on the shelves and in fly shops. The breast designs on the crosscut deluxe snap shirts include sunbeams, desert roses, coral snakes on the move, and whatever the heck desert trip looks like. To them, it's a starry sky and a longhorn skull. Take your own desert trip to your local fly shop or howlerbros.com, where you can find your new favorite work shirt or a fresh flannel for Festivus. A Festivus for the rest of us! Speaking of fall 2021, back to my chat with editor Tom Bai about the upcoming issue of The Drake Magazine. And we're about to talk about the bug section, where we focus on an insect or a fly pattern that's worthy of a few words. This issue is really just about a big bass bug that a long time fly tire, kind of famous fly tire named Skip Morris wrote about bluegill and big bass. From there, we head to the rod holders segment, where we profile a person in the angling community that deserves a nod. Sometimes it's a well-known conservationist or a guide who's making a name for themselves. But this time around, it's not about any sort of fly fishing personality that anyone is going to know. This is just a man from England who wrote about a man he met when he was a kid, seven, eight years old, and the influence that he had on him as an angler. And I'm sure almost every 
angler out there, fly fisher or otherwise, has someone like that. For a lot of people, it's their grandpa, their dad, or whatever. And this was just a a neighbor. And it's a what else I forgot? Um, the city limits is just the idea of getting out in an urban environment. Written by a recent college graduate who's based in the Piedmont region of North Carolina. He's one of those guys, got out of college, has his first job, and he's kind of stuck in this kind of in, in environment. And he found a little escape pond slash creek, super close to his house. I think he says four minutes. And he has a run in there with a tackle fisherman that casts across. <laughs> and you'll just, uh, it's... Not surprising that it would occur where it occurred, but he has, he has a great way of uh, telling the story. Finally, you turn to the last page of the magazine, which is dedicated to the ghost of the flats. The permit page is definitely the most unique permit page I've ever run. I totally randomly was on eBay looking for something. I'm not an eBay guy. I'm never really scrolling through that, but However it happens to any of us, I find myself on this site and I come across these two postcards of two submarines in the U.S. Navy called USS Tarpon and USS Permit. Super badass in World War II. (laughs) And I just found myself Googling what these two submarines did in World War II. And these postcards that I found... They're sent from the boat, like the day that they were commissioned. They're postmarks, 1936, and it's like the day that they launched. The Tarpon one has a big picture of the Tarpon actually on it. And I just wrote the story about these two submarines. So if you're at all interested in like military history, it's just a fascinating little story, but it's not really about catching permit at all. Let's be honest, the permit page is rarely about actually catching a permit. No, it's usually about people going fishing for them and not catching them, which gets kind of old anyway after a while. And that is, that's the rundown for this issue. Did I miss anything? <laughs> no, how many, how many pages is uh, she coming in at? Uh, same as it's been the last few issues. I think it's 120 would be right, I guess. Yeah, maybe the last winter I had it. It was 128. The problem with that is it just pushes the weight over a pound and then it costs a lot more money <laughs> to send it out <laughs> if, uh, if you want the truth. <laughs> Many thanks to Scott Flyrods, The Eleven Experience, and Howler Brothers for making this episode possible. And a big thanks to all of the advertisers in the print magazine as well. If you like the Drake cast, show your support by subscribing to the magazine. A shout out to our voice actor, Bobby Yeckert, who is a guide in upstate New York. He plays a mean Alec Baldwin and knows what he's doing behind the oars. You can find him on Instagram, at freestonefly-tours. More stories coming in the near future. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast.